So I'll invite you this evening to, in whatever way helps you, to have that sense of both inner presence and outer listening at the same time. In whatever way that works for you. It might be to stay with your body or to use some of the tools that we've been using. And I thought I would read uh, a short poem about connecting the inner and the outer. That was written on a, a teen retreat I helped with. Um, by, uh, the poem was written by Nick Riggle, who I believe lives in Sonoma County, or used to. We, we asked the teenagers to write a poem on the connection between the inner and the outer. He wrote, the outside seems conditioned by the inside and back and forth. What an obnoxious pattern. (laughs) (laughs) So I was wanting to reflect first a little bit about the relationship between the mindfulness practices and the loving-kindness practices and some of the speech practices that we do. Just a few reflections. Um, One is that we can ask uh, sometimes when we look at these different practices and we can think of the distinction sometimes made in Buddhist, I think in other traditions, between body, speech, and mind. Uh, What is most important? what is most fundamental to work with? And usually the answer would be the mind. That, and I think we can see that when we look to some of what we've been exploring or what's come up in our discussion, that um, we can really be benefited a lot by speech practices and using language more skillfully But perhaps ultimately, we can't do too much with speech unless we can do something with, let's say, our difficult emotions, our judgments, our stories. And so it would seem, maybe at first, that the mind is most important. You know, and, and that, and really, we could say in Buddhist tradition, when we usually see the word mind, it really can be translated as mind and heart. You know, in, in the uh, Asian languages, a word like citta has connotations of both mind and heart. And actually, it's very interesting seeing the typologies of feelings and emotions, because actually, in the Asian languages, there's no word that even translates very easily as emotion. Quite something, you know, to see just the way they're different maps. You know, the tendency there more is to see mind, what we call mind and heart, as one category. And the the word in the Pali language would be citta, C-I-T-T-A. Usually translated as mind, but I think misleadingly translated. And so we might think that really working, you know, we come to a practice of speech and communication. And we might really come to see, well, boy, these practices of how do I work with my emotions, my stories, my thoughts, my limiting beliefs, and so forth. It's, it's a lot. And um, I think it's also the case that unless we work with the mind and the heart, we can learn some new techniques about using language, but it won't go too deeply unless we're also using or also practicing with mind and heart and body and so forth. And even at the, at the worst, I've heard that at times people who've learned um, NVC can use it strategically. <laughs> and I'm sure Oren has plenty of stories of this, but but that I've heard stories of 
you know, when kind of, you know, people using NBC language in a strategic way to kind of like get at each other, right? You know, um, that wasn't really a feeling. <laughs> or, or people can, can use it, you know, when, I, when you said that, uh, I felt really wretched, and I thought you were using NBC. You know, anyway, it could be worst-case scenario. You could imagine I mean, kind of like, like the stuff of New Yorker cartoons or something. <laughs> <laughs> right? So we could... And, and I've, I've heard stories of that. So um, language techniques can be very, very helpful, but if we don't work with the underlying material of our minds, our hearts, our bodies... We, ha- we don't go too deeply. That's one perspective. Another perspective, I think that's also to be considered, and I think we could see this this morning in working with some of the material on needs and feelings, is that actually how we use language is intimately connected with how our minds and hearts work. So it's actually maybe not such a clear distinction, right? And we could see that when we actually start using language a little differently, that some of the NBC work is helping us, for example, to use language in a way which, in a difficulty or conflict, leads to less defensiveness on the part of the other person. And maybe on our part, using language in a certain way leads to less aggression. It's connected with that. So maybe they go more hand-in-hand. And that as we um, are more skillful with our minds and our hearts, we maybe use language more skillfully. And the language can sometimes lead us, can really, uh, can really help us to, to understand. I was, I was thinking of a, a story I like a lot that I heard about um, a young girl who was brought up, I think it was in this area, and was brought up by parents who were psychologists and who brought up the child really clearly to distinguish between um, herself, her nature, which was, she was told was good, and actions or things that she did, which might be questioned or criticized, but the parents were all, always very careful to distinguish between the action and her being. One day, her family and another family with a small child were taking a trip. And the boy and the girl were sitting in the back seat. They're three and a half years old. And the girl had learned this use of language. And the boy started, didn't like something she did. And he said to her, you're a bad girl. <laughs> and her response was, there actually are no bad girls. There are only bad actions. <laughs> <laughs> And, and so the, the language, you know, the language in some ways helped with that response, right? She knew that he was getting caught up in something, that, her, that she, uh, questionable assumption. So, so the, the language, I think, sometimes goes hand in hand with our development. And it also, uh, it also takes time. That this practice, if, if, lang- if our skillful use of language goes hand in hand with our development of our hearts and minds, we know that the development of our hearts and minds generally takes some time. And I was, uh, I found, I was talking with um, um, one of the teachers in the other retreat who remembered a passage in the Vasudhi Magga, which I looked up, which is what uh, called the Path of Purification from about 1,500 years ago. And uh, there's a passage there where it basically says, it looked at the four ethical principles of being truthful, helpful, coming out of a warm heart, and having appropriate thought, non-distracted thought, uh, talk, sorry, and so forth. And in this text, it said that only with the first level of enlightenment does untruthful speech fall away? So be patient. <laughs> and it's also said that 
um, unhelpful and unkind speech only fall away at the third level of enlightenment. And guess what falls away last? Bad timing. <laughs> and, and, and gossip. You know, I mean, in the text it's talked about as gossip, but we could say distracted thought because the last fetters in the traditional language of the mind and heart that fall away is this cloud-like ignorance or delusion. And distracted thought is a manifestation, or distracted talk, I should say, but distracted thought also, (laughs) is a manifestation of delusion and ignorance in a way that uh, lying is not. Lying generally is deliberate, has an aspect of consciousness. And that, uh, that can fall away quicker. So I think this is actually means that we um, may want to continue this practice after the retreat. And that it, it does take time. And, and also that we can be actually very wise beings and have all sorts of unwise speech come out of our mouths, and that's okay. That's normal. If it's coming out all the time. (laughs) (laughs) But to have it come out sometimes, we don't need to be judgmental because it really is connected with our level of development. And it's a slow process. So one of the very basic ways that we cultivate our minds and hearts are in what, are, what could be called the practices of the heart, like loving kindness and compassion and joy and equanimity, the way of holding everything that comes in one's experience in the heart in a balanced way. And that's what I want to talk about this evening. I want to talk about speaking from the heart and how speech practice connects with loving-kindness and explore that together. And we can remember how the Buddha talks about that quality of speaking from the heart. You know, in in the handout which I gave, there I, I would just want, you don't have to look at this, but I just wanted to read briefly two of those passages where it talks about the quality of speaking from the heart because further development in having our speech be connected with our hearts is one of the fundamental ways we can develop in our speech practice. And it's a very simple, accessible practice. We can have that as an intention for you know um, a period here at this retreat, maybe for a period of time when we get home, And it's a wonderful practice just to keep coming back to. And it's talked about quite simply. Here's how the Buddha talks about it. One speaks such words as are gentle, pleasing to the ear, and and lovable, as go to the heart, are courteous, desired by many and agreeable to many. And then he also says, a well-spoken statement is spoken affectionately. It is spoken with a mind of goodwill. So we have words like words that are lovable as go to the heart are spoken affectionately, are spoken with a mind of goodwill. And so we have, in a way, this parallel practice of developing our hearts through loving kindness and other practices and developing that heart of goodwill and hand in hand developing the speech that comes from that heart of goodwill. So I want to explore some ways that 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 can occur. A nice way of talking about speaking from the heart came from um, a four-year-old boy who was part of a research project where professionals asked 48-year-old kids, what does love mean to you? 
Billy, age four, responded, when someone loves you, the way they say your name is different. You just know that your name is safe in their mouth. Okay, end of the talk. That's what <laughs> when someone loves you the way they say your, your name is different, that you just know that your name is safe in their mouth. A lot there, isn't it? You know, it's a lot. It's quite, quite something. Karen, age seven, responded, when you love somebody, your eyelashes go up and down and little stars come out of you. <laughs> so when we can think, think of the stars as speech. You know, that what is speaking from the heart look like? We'll practice tomorrow eyelashes going up and down. <laughs> And stars coming out as words, you know? But it's something like that. It's the feeling. You can really, we can really feel that. And, and we, can, we can aspire to, towards that. I mentioned in introducing loving kindness that loving kindness is really the continual atten- intention to bring about kindness in one's own heart. And that's, it's an important understanding to know that loving-kindness practice is an intention practice. In fact, all practice is an intention practice. We're not demanding, I will be loving. I like to say it's not a production practice, but an intention practice. I'm not demanding, I will be loving. But rather, I'm intending with my phrases and loving-kindness practice to open the door of my heart. And when we intend loving speech, we can do our best to have our speech come in, in that, go in the direction of being loving. Another way of looking at it is it's really to check in and say, where is my heart right now? What's the quality of my heart? And we could say, how is the quality of my heart reflected in my speech? Moment by moment, we can just ask that. And monitor. So in that sense, loving kindness practice is a kind of mindfulness practice. We're monitoring what there is. The reason that loving speech can be more of a regular practice and the reason that loving kindness can become stronger and stronger is that it reflects our basic nature. And I'm asserting that, as it were, but it's something really to investigate. And this is certainly the claim of the Buddha, the finding, as it were, and it's also, of course, the finding that we find in many, many spiritual traditions. Again, a very optimistic sense of who we are, that our true nature has qualities of the radiant heart. And our practice is to, in a sense, uncover the sun that is the radiant heart and find it amidst all the clouds. So a lot of what practice is, is hanging out in the clouds (laughs) and gradually letting the sun come through. In the Buddhist text, it's said that that there are qualities of the mind and the heart that are brightly shining. I read one quotation from from that um, emphasis yesterday and that, that, that this is connected with loving kindness. From one text, it is said that the liberation of the mind and the heart by metta shines and glows and radiates and is like the radiance of the moon. So we can see the radiance of the sun, the moon, 
And this is really the, the reason that loving kindness works, because it starts to open us up to that radiance. As we have that heart open more, I think there are three processes that I want to talk about for the rest of the evening that show us in a way how loving kindness works and how they can really how loving kindness can affect our, our speech practice and really be a part of it. And the first is I want to say that as we practice more loving kindness and speaking from the heart, First, we learn how to really, in a way, lead with our hearts. Lead in our speech with our hearts. Quite simple idea, right? What does it mean to lead with our hearts? Rather than with what? Our strategies? Our suffering? What else do we lead with? Our minds? Our problem solving? So I'll come back to that. And a second way that we grow when we work with loving-kindness practice and, and cultivating the heart is that we really engage in a process of purification that we've looked at a lot in our discussion so far. That, In other words, we, we practice with the clouds. We practice with what obscures that radiance. We learn and we, we gradually thin the clouds. We could call that a process of purification. And then thirdly, we come more and more in touch with the depth, the depths of our being, where there is that radiance, and when that radiance is manifesting, it will tend to manifest more naturally as loving speech. Those are the three themes I want to explore for the rest of the evening. So we can really see part of our practice as learning to lead with our hearts. Even if we've been quite conditioned to lead in other ways. I think my conditioning was to lead with my thinking. And it has its virtues. Good problem-solving capabilities. <laughs> you know, and Many of us probably learn to lead more with our our minds in that way. And for me, loving kindness practice was really, really helpful and crucial because it really helped me more to lead with my heart. And by leading, I mean that this is a capacity for, for one to have this be how one meets experience moment by moment. I think in the long run, we want to have our mature minds, hearts, and bodies be co-leaders <laughs> and, and all be there. But along the way, we sometimes need to train where we, we don't have capacity. So we may need to train to learn to lead with the heart, or I may need to train to learn to lead with my wisdom, or I may need to learn to be in my body and, in a sense, lead with my body, lead with my presence. And, and all those can be important for myself. Learning to, learning to lead with the heart was something which wasn't part of my um, original upbringing and conditioning. I think I have very heart-centered nature. I was one of the few people in high school who cried at driver ed movies. Do you remember driver ed movies? Okay. Olivia, do you, I know you, did you have driver ed movies in Columbia? The which one? They were alert to be a driver at age 15 or 16. We were showing all these gory movies of people crashing cars. <laughs> anyway, just a cultural translation. Okay. Um, so, so I knew there was a good heart there. <laughs> But it, it wasn't always present. And then I think, again, there was, there was thinking. And I, I remember very much, um, I was a student for a year in Germany. And I remember this very, very important moment for me when I was um, walking 
from I was living on this farm and studying German in this little village called Schwäbisch Hall in um, kind of southwest Germany. And I would be walking along, and one moment I realized I was thinking all the time. You know, even with my emotional nature, I was just thinking all the time, my, my conditioning. And I said to myself, I'm just like consciousness on a pole. <laughs> and it was kind of a startling, I mean, it's humorous in one way, but it was pretty startling because it felt like I was, I was actually feeling a disconnection that I wanted to do something about. But so I had, personally, I had to really learn. Some of us here probably had leading with the heart, maybe more part of your upbringing or more natural. You know, and maybe you have to learn something else. Maybe you have to learn something else. So we can learn to lead in a way with our hearts. You know, and we can um, do that as a training. Loving kindness practice is a kind of training in leading with the hearts leading with our hearts. And when we do it a lot, it can really transform things. The longest time that I've done loving kindness was about five weeks. Repeating the loving kindness phrases uh, about 18 hours a day for five weeks. Actually beautiful, as you might imagine. There are a few dry moments here and there. But actually, relatively few. Because actually, the loving-kindness practice, when it kicks in, the feeling is there. The feeling of loving-kindness is there. And the phrases are secondary. And the phrases are quite secondary. And there is that feeling of a radiance. And it was, for me, had a, had a change that some of my friends who didn't even know I had been doing it, they noticed something after the five weeks. Um, Red eyes. What? <laughs> okay. I didn't hear that. My red eyes. My red eyes. Um, I think. Yeah, I think there was. There was. Um, from the inside, it felt like I was centered in loving kindness, and it was so. You know, we were silent, of course, but I, I found in that time that. I needed to lead, I wanted to lead all the time with loving kindness. And so I would notice sometimes when I would even have my mind working simply in a descriptive way, I would notice someone walking and I would notice um, that person is limping. And if I noticed it descriptively, but there wasn't a sense of warmth in what I was saying to myself, it felt off. Very interesting that the mind, in other words, my mind just acting cognitively without loving kindness at that moment in the retreat felt off. And I felt like I had to come back with a special loving kindness for that person. Or if I was um, in the dining hall and, and found myself saying, that person's taking a lot of food. <laughs> One of our major preoccupations on retreats is to <laughs> sit around and watch how much food people take, right? <laughs> and and I would um, want to come back and correct that. At that time, that felt even, you know, the, the neutral cognitive use of mind felt off. And of course, something that was slightly judgmental felt more off. And I felt I had to come back with the loving kindness. So it was really, it's something we can train in. You know, and people, you may, may know Gandhi, for example, used to have or in his life, he had this mantra of repeating a devotional phrase, Ram, which is really a word for, for God. And he continually repeated it as a devotional practice, just like some people, I have a close friend, her spiritual practice is chanting. And it's a way of keeping love continually in the heart. She tries to do it all day long, have a chant going in her consciousness, you know? And it's a way of, of continually leading with the heart. It's something that we can that we can aspire to. You know, as we 
as we do that, we can also come to lead with the heart, even when there are difficulties. You know, and we were talking before about the use of loving kindness as one kind of an antidote. That one, when loving kindness becomes strong, we can sometimes use loving kindness to shift the energy. And so for me, with loving kindness becoming stronger, I would find myself, and I still use it very much as a practice, if for any reason I go into a, a difficult place. Or, you know, it might be um, I wake up in the middle of the night and there's some kind of vulnerable state that I go into where maybe an old conditioning has some temporary power over me, right? And something maybe might be judgmental, right? I mean, we know this, right? We know how judgments like to come in the middle of the night. Anyone experience that? Anyone experience it on this retreat? <laughs> yeah. So, so they, they often come like that. And we can use loving kindness when it's strong as an antidote when we can't be mindful. And this is what came up with Jocelyn's question in the morning. When, for whatever reason, the emotion or the state is too strong and we can't really be mindful. If we can, if it, if we can be mindful... That's good. Sometimes 3 a.m., not so easy to be mindful, but we can bring loving kindness. And so it's a beautiful antidote. We can lead with our hearts even when there are difficulties. It can really be a very, very powerful resource. And just one, one last word about leading with the heart. As I've mentioned, I think before, that leading with the heart doesn't mean being overly nice. And I've been exploring, both in practice and in thinking, uh, what I like to call tough metta. (laughs) (laughs) Analog of tough love, right? I think there's something like uh, tough metta. That metta doesn't mean being a pushover or being overly nice, but one can actually have love in the heart and lead with the heart and be very firm. Sometimes not so easy to do that or it's challenging. But I think we find that with many of the great figures who've really manifested a lot of love. You know, when we read the texts of the Buddha or the texts of Jesus or the stories of Gandhi or Martin Luther King, we find them manifesting tremendous amount of love in a way that can be very firm and often say hard things communicate uh, strength and firmness and actually encounter encounter uh, real difficulty or oppression in a firm way through, through the spirit of love. The second process that I want to talk about that occurs as we do more loving-kindness practice and as that we invoke the quality of love, is that in a way we, there's a process that we could call a process of purification. You know, the other metaphor is that the, the, as it were, the sun comes out, the sun of our own radiance comes out more, and the clouds become thinned. It's sort of an analogous process, different metaphor. To use the the, uh, metaphor of purification, it's, I think, happens in two ways. One of them is that we see more clearly our impurities. And the second is that we touch more fully our pure nature. Both of those processes happen. So part of what happens when we do loving kindness and when we do really any of the practices we're doing with mindfulness, with speech practice, it's that we... Um, it's that we really come to look at, almost necessarily, we have brought up some of our difficult places. It's, it's a lot of what happens at retreats. You know that, and some of us plan to come to retreats to work with our stuff, right? Some of us plan months in advance. At this retreat, I will work with this stuff. And sometimes some of us plan to have bliss and are given stuff. (laughs) 
some of us plan to have stuff and are given bliss and are disappointed. <laughs> and so we we learn how to we learn how to open to that. We learn how to open to the difficult emotions. We learn how to open to parts of ourselves which may be very, very old, so to speak. They've been with us since we were kids. Maybe our our limiting beliefs of who we are. You know, our sense of being inadequate or flawed or too wounded or overly sensitive. Anyone here at this retreat ever be been called too sensitive? I think we collect these kind of people. <laughs> yeah, and it's and it's funny, and we can laugh among each other, <laughs> or some some of us. But 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 there are wounds there, aren't there? You know, and there are wounds, and there are beliefs that, in our more difficult moments, they take over. Right? They they have command. And in some ways, when we bring loving kindness to the, the process, when we engage more in that, we see those parts of ourselves. And in a way, we have to understand them and embrace them, see them more clearly. We need to notice these parts of ourselves so we can see when they're taking over, see when they're um, coming into power. And so we do the mindfulness practice to help us just uh, over in a slow way. We notice thoughts, emotions, different processes. Gradually, we start to see patterns. And as we work more with our minds and our hearts and our bodies, slowly, some of the old, deep, repetitive patterns start to become more visible. We start to see them. We start to work with them. And we can bring a quality of kindness to them. But it's something that happens often when we do, when we emphasize um, loving kindness or loving speech, when we want to be loving. Sometimes the impurities come out more, so to speak, and we can work with them. And very important is that we also, as almost a parallel process, we incline towards the pure. We notice the impurities, and we also incline towards the pure or the positive. We could call them awakened qualities like mindfulness or care or love. In in the context of NVC, we start to see more clearly as we bring mindfulness to our speech, we notice our old strategies, right? Our different strategies of talking. A lot of us have noticed already a lot of very interesting reports the last two days. Oh, this is what I do. Oh, this is my pattern of speaking because those, what I was calling the limiting beliefs or the old patterns, they're all connected with patterns of speech as well. And part of what we do as we engage in this dual process of developing further in meditation but also developing further in our speech practice and then connecting them is that we start to not only see patterns of mind, but we start to see how those patterns of mind are reflected in our speech in ways that can be embarrassing or painful to see, but we have to notice them and really see them in a way really directly. And then we also incline ourselves towards what using the metaphor I'm calling the pure, we could also, again, call it awakened qualities, we strengthen them. Essentially, we strengthen loving kindness, we strengthen mindfulness, we strengthen equanimity. They get stronger, and as they get stronger, the center of gravity of our identity shifts. And we become increasingly convinced that I, my true nature, is these beautiful qualities. I think we all know that at certain certain moments, right? We've had moments where we know that. But a lot of our time, we don't believe that. We think that I'm my sadness or maybe the words of others get through to us, right? 
And so it's really important part of this practice to keep on cultivating the beautiful qualities over and over again. When I've worked with people with the judgmental mind, which has kind of unexpectedly become a specialty for me. As a uh, recovering judgmental person myself, (laughs) so to speak, um, I had done a lot of work and I started offering day-longs at Spirit Rock on judgments about eight years ago. And there was a strong response. And I basically have done groups on transforming the judgmental mind once a month for eight years. So I've worked with a lot of people on that theme. And it's a very powerful theme. It's one of the main impurities that gets worked with in our, in our practice. It's definitely one of the top three um, difficult patterns that I've, that I've seen. And, we can, and what I have found is that successful transformative work with the judgmental mind requires both really tracking the patterns of judgments and tracking them back in many cases to their roots, their deeper roots, maybe in, in very old messages that we received and internalized. You know, messages like the ones I mentioned, that I'm flawed or that I'm too sensitive or that there's something or that um, I don't really belong that I'm somehow strange or marginal or something. And virtually everyone has some version of a a belief like that. And we have to study them and track them, get familiar. It takes quite a bit of courage, actually, to explore. And, but hand in hand with that, we have to open up to these beautiful qualities because we don't really shift away from the judgment until we have a sense a deeper sense of ourselves as most basically radiant beings of love and wisdom. And it's it's like we practice loving kindness over and over again to awaken that part of ourselves. It's like I use the metaphor, loving-kindness practice, the repetition of the phrases is the knocking on the door of the heart. Eventually, the door opens without a need for further knocking. And it just stays open more of the time. And it's, it's, it's there. So I just want to conclude by really continuing that theme that as we practice uh, to become more loving and kind and really have that as a focus in various ways and, and align our speech with that in all sorts of ways. You know, we, and we've talked about that and we want, to, we, we want to recognize that this is a long process, that it can take time. And, something that we didn't mention yet, but that we will be um, offering um, a follow-up group after the retreat to really sustain the development from the retreat because it does take continual support. And we may be able to do some of that in person and possibly also have a ways to bring in people by telephone if people are not in the area. But we'll talk more about that. But it takes that kind of sustained work to, to do that. We need to find all sorts of ways to, to bring this practice in, in, in the case of um, uh, speaking more from the heart. We need to find different ways to do that. You know, one way is, is when we do the loving kindness practice enough, we start to have a sense, and we'll, we'll give further instructions on this tonight in the loving kindness practice. We can almost have a sense of a loving-kindness having this location and that the heart actually is radiating. We can feel that more and more. We can actually sometimes have a physical way to help us speak from the heart. I mentioned how when I give a talk, I try to locate myself in my body, my belly, and my heart. And there's a way that just having that 
physical presence to the heart area can help speaking from the heart. And as we do it more and more, it becomes more of a habit. There are all sorts of ways to do that. One way that um, I found unexpectedly was after the five-week retreat, um, or actually the last week of the five-week retreat doing loving-kindness practice, about three or four days before the retreat ended, I had something to take care of outside of the retreat. I had some things I needed to um, find out about. And so I uh, downloaded uh, 400 emails at that point in after four and a half weeks of doing 18 hours a day of loving kindness practice. And what was very interesting is what happened. Because of the momentum of the loving kindness practice, I couldn't answer an email without doing loving kindness throughout the, the process of reading and composing the email. And so I actually developed a practice that right there and then, out of necessity, where for that whole time I, I, I would answer emails and I kind of spontaneously had a practice where for every email I would do for the person four phrases of loving kindness and also try to convey the message of loving kindness in the body of the email. It started that retreat, which was about five, over five years ago, and I pretty much have kept it with every email that I write now. I try to vary the message sometimes so it doesn't get too obnoxious for people to get a lot of emails from me. You know, like, I usually say something like, I hope this finds you well, but more important is really the inner process. And it's, I think it's a creative ways of, this is a form of uh, speaking from the heart with electronic communication, right? It's pretty simple. And a lot of people have really liked it. I, I don't know, I, when I talk about it, a lot of people say, oh, I'm doing that now. So now I get all these emails saying, may this find you well, <laughs> right at the beginning of the email. Oh my God. <laughs> But it's something, it's something that we do, that we explore. How do we express the loving heart in our communication? We work on that. And we come more and more from some of these, these depths. We really try to have, as it were, the depths of our being be the speaker. And we engage in training towards, towards that end. And we have to, in a way, be able to keep accessing the heart. And so I think that anyone who wants to develop wise speech should have a heart practice, have a practice that lets us stay connected to our heart, that lets the heart grow, and then can then express that in communication. And ultimately, um, over time, can have that be the place where we live more and more and have us more and more convinced, and it's, it can be a long process, more and more convinced that this is what is most real, you know, so that it may be over time we have a sense of one radiant heart with a few clouds around communicating to another radiant heart with some clouds around. So I, th I think I'll, I'll finish with one of my favorite quotations about the loving heart from uh, Thomas Merton, the uh, great Catholic contemplative who lived at the uh, Abbey of Gethsemane in Kentucky. And I... Uh, lived for four years in Kentucky and spent a lot of time at that monastery and got to know a lot of the monks there well and some of the nuns who lived at the Sisters of Loretto. And he's one of the persons who helped bridge Christian contemplative and Buddhist contemplative traditions in a beautiful way. So this is from, from Thomas Merton. And you can, he uses the word God at one point. If that's an issue, you can just translate that into 
uh, in your own way. He was going to Louisville for nearby, about 40 miles away, for a medical appointment. And suddenly, someone who had been meditating most of his days for a lot of years, suddenly something just opened up and he came to, on a very ordinary day, just on a street in downtown Louisville, something opened up. And this is how he described the experience, which this is what I want to end with. Then it was as if I suddenly saw the secret beauty of hearts. The depths of their hearts where neither sin nor desire nor self-knowledge can reach the core of their reality. The person that each one is in God's eyes. If only they could see themselves as they really are. If only we could see ourselves that way all the time. There would be no more war, no more hatred, no more cruelty, no more greed. I suppose the big problem is that we would fall down and worship each other. Let's just sit with the talk and Thomas Merton's words for a few minutes. Then it was as if I suddenly saw the secret beauty of hearts, the depths of their hearts, the core of their reality. If only they could see themselves as they really are, if only we can see each other, could see each other that way all the time. There would be no more war, no more hatred, no more cruelty, no more greed. I suppose the big problem is that we would fall down and worship each other. So thank you kindly for, for your attention. We'll have a, a walking period and then come back for loving kindness. And I'll introduce a few more. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.